Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Brown People Problems, a podcast where I, Nikita, chat with my guests about what it looks like to navigate life while being brown and really just talk about the unique experiences of brown folks um, across all domains of life. And for today's episode, I think you guys need to sit down for this one because (laughs) I'm so excited to be filming this episode today i'm so honored and so excited to be joined by Bali core jesswell she is a world famous widely published and award-winning author of several books including sugar bread unlikely adventures of Sheridan sisters and my personal favorite um, erotic stories for punjabi women which was also on the reese witherspoon's book clip book club pick and that's how i sort of found out about it and i have my copy in front of me too i'm looking at it and it feels like we're in the same space <laughs> because i've got my book in front of me um but uh, Bali has been a former writing fellow at the university of east anglia and has taught creative writing as well at different universities she also has a phd in south asian diaspora uh, writing and her most recent book, Now You See Us, just hit the shelves last week. I'm very excited to grab my first copy. But welcome to Brown People Problems, Bali. I'm so thrilled and grateful you made some time in your busy schedule for this. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's an honor. Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited. I remember when I was um, uh, coming up with a list of uh, who I'd like to invite on the podcast and I haven't stopped raving about your book for years obviously <laughs> and my partner is just so sick of it um, because I'm always just constantly raving on about your books and so he said well why don't you reach out to some of your favorite authors and bring them on because I have a lot of um, South Asian female authors that I really enjoy and it's like, oh, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll shoot an email to Billy. And I did not expect a response. I was floored <laughs> when you, you responded. You said, okay, well, let's let's talk. So I'm very excited to get into this. I am as well. I'm really excited to talk to you. Yeah, yeah. So um, tell us a little bit about your, your journey as a writer. And I know it's probably sure. complex and there were lots of ups and downs, but I'm really curious about what this whole process has been like for you. Sure. Um, it's, I guess when I think about my journey as a writer, there are two things. There's the journey that I had as a kid who loved to write. And like, you know, not really thinking about publishing, not really thinking about putting my work out there, but just a kid like that, that very pure journey of like, you find the thing that you love to do and you just want to do it all the time. And everyone goes, get your head out of the closet because <laughs> that's all you're doing. Yeah. Um, so there's that journey, um, mm. which started around the same time that I started reading, right? As for, I think of oh. when I started reading, I realized that I also wanted to tell stories Mm. Um, so it felt like a real kind of, it felt like a very natural compulsion. It was Mm. a very natural link from one thing to the other. Mm. I suppose, um, my journey as a published author, um, Mm. began in my twenties. I think I I published a few short stories. Um, Mm. I guess it started before that when I went to um, college because I I Mm. did an undergraduate course in, uh, creative writing. And, but you know, that doesn't necessarily hand you publishing credentials or you don't come out with a novel usually, but you come out with some skills, you come out with maybe a sense of like, of purpose, like this is definitely Mm -hmm. what I want to do. And then it's up to you to sort of follow that path and and, and to continue with it. So I just remember Mm -hmm. thinking, yes, like this is the thing that makes me feel most like myself. It's the thing Mm -hmm. that feels like home and makes me feel most alive. So that was, that was my journey as a writer. Yeah, that Mm -hmm. was where it began. Yeah, it sounds really lovely. I think every um, author that I speak to, almost everyone was an avid reader in childhood. I don't (laughs) think I've spoken to anyone who didn't like books or got into reading later on in life. It would be a very weird thing to get into. Be like a a chef who hates food. Like, why would you you do that to yourself? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. but yeah, it sounds like you've you've enjoyed reading and reading for reading and writing for quite some time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I never took a creative writing course in my life, but I've always thought about writing. And I think, and I don't know if this is something that you experienced, but I think something that comes up for a lot of us is this sense of perfectionism when yeah. we're, you know, practicing any 
art or hobby or any type of creative work it's like all this pressure to get it right and to have like this perfect version of it and did anything like that come up for you yeah um definitely with other things that i tried i remember like being like if i tried a sport which i'm just terrible at or like any other subject where like if i didn't do well the first time then it was like okay then i guess that's not the thing i'm good at which is partly a product of i think there's there's something about immigrant upbringing that's a bit of, like it's almost like we can't waste time we have to find out the mm. thing that you're good at so then i also grew up in singapore where that's pretty much the school system as well mm. like you're on a treadmill and if you trip it's like okay you get off now mm. um and that's so it was like it was like those two things combined and i think mm. also just my personality <laughs> um that mm. that i didn't really have much of a growth mindset I've been learning and thinking a lot about that lately, you know, because in in adulthood, that certainly comes back to bite you, right? All the stuff that you just gave up on because you were like, oh, I'm not good enough at Mm -hmm. that. And then all the pressure you put on yourself to do very well at the thing that you're, you actually feel like you're pretty good at. And Mm -hmm. the the disappointment, the devastation of, you know, you fall from very great heights if you, if you happen to fail at that thing in some, you know, in some way. Um, so that's that's a, a that's a lot of baggage that we kind of have to carry when we when we attempt things. I think mm-hmm. that that we don't really acknowledge. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and we have to unlearn a lot of that now as adults. Yeah. Right. A lot of these like yeah. internalized beliefs and standards they really get in the way of us being able to explore and live creatively, because I think yeah. as a group. Um, well, as a really big group, South Asians, I think we're very creative people, um, but I think it gets squashed down by a lot of these like expectations yeah. and rigidity. I remember, so I was I was born in India, but I was raised in Canada. So I like to think I have the best of both worlds. Um, mm-hmm. I remember I was in grade three in India and we had art class and we had to draw this like fruit bowl, right? That standard mm-hmm. fruit bowl that everybody has to draw. <laughs> And I pretty much failed grade three art class. I got like a pity pass because (laughs) my fruits weren't, you know, my oranges weren't an exact specific circle or my grapes somewhere, somewhere too big, somewhere too small. Like it didn't look exactly like how the school system thought it should look. And that really put me off of art and drawing for so long it wasn't until like covid happened and i decided to well i wonder if i'm you know any better at art now and i think it took a lot of work to to say okay my circles don't have to be perfectly round like art (laughs) doesn't follow rules it's okay to just be abstract and express i can totally identify with that yeah and i think you're right i think we are actually quite naturally creative but something about immigrant mindset or just I don't know something just makes us go no creativity it's a dead end right we don't Mm -hmm. do that but we're actually like we're such good storytellers I think um Mm -hmm. we're such good joke tellers we're Mm -hmm. we're, we've got such a great heritage of music Mm -hmm. and art and gosh you know just history you know just knowledge of, of diversity and different cultures and linguistics like we have we just have so much at our disposal mm-hmm. that you know as long as you can't professionalize it um and there's a very narrow view of what can be professionalized as well which is interesting because you can't absolutely professionalize all those things mm-hmm. um we're both living proof right you can professionalize like the so the so-called soft the softer yeah. subjects yeah. right um yeah it's, it's it's a real shame yeah absolutely i think a lot of it goes back to just this like um colonial trauma right we as a group we're so used to being in survival mode and the only way to survive a a lot of that like dynamic that colonial dynamic was to excel in these like more traditional aspects right achievement was so much tied to survival um and that now as children of immigrants um maybe living outside of like south asia or even within south asia but i think we're kind of facing this like privilege now where we can mm. we kind of get to say okay well you know this narrative like no longer fits i don't have to be in survival mode anymore yeah. right? but i yeah. think a lot of it just comes from constantly being on survival our ancestors have been on in survival mode for like generations yeah and don't you still i mean i feel like i still have that like even though like oh, yeah. you know i can i can survive on my writing um i still feel like i need to you know have a full-time job that's why i got the phd that's why I teach at university. Like I'm like, you know, I have to have a real job. <laughs> like this mm-hmm. is this, this, this silly creative thing that I do. 
Um, mm. You know, I, I can't just do this. So we, it, it does, it is still ingrained in a certain way. Like I, I, I feel like quite guilty about just mm. doing one thing, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that just like, goes to show, right? Like how ingrained a lot of this, some of these beliefs are for us. It's conscious work to keep challenging them and reframing them. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I know fiction and literature, uh, in, in my perspective, and sort of what I've experienced, have not historically been inclusive of stories of like women of color, especially brown women. I grew up on Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew, Enid Blyton. You know, I grew up on all of these classics and they were lovely, but it wasn't until, gosh, I think in my early 20s, when I walked into our chain bookstore here in Canada and I saw, I don't even remember who it was, but I saw a brown author and I was sort of taken aback. I was like, whoa, like it, like visually it felt (laughs) so sort of like disorienting. I was like, oh my gosh, this is really exposed to, um, BIPOC authors, right? Brown authors that I found, you know, um, some of the other authors like from India. And I wonder if there was something in specific that inspired you to write stories about brown women, brown families, larger Punjabi diaspora. Yeah, I think I was pretty lucky, uh, similar to you walking into a bookstore. I think like I just happened to grow up in a time when mm there were one or two like it was mm. still pretty scarce but there were it was like indian south asian voices were just starting to emerge mm. um in in the liter in the western literary world which you know what what was the international publishing world at the time and and, and those were the people the, those were the companies that that um mm. disseminated all of the english-speaking books right so in, here mm. in singapore um i had never read about the lives of indian people and mm. then a book like the god of small things comes out mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it <laughs> blows my mind wide open mm-hmm. um and I'm t- i was like too young to understand it at the time like i think i was mm-hmm. only like i was only like 13 or 14 and then when i was 16 we read it in school and i remember mm-hmm. just like falling in love with the language mm-hmm. and just knowing that just knowing that like oh there, there are books you know that 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 that's, that speak to our experiences even though i wasn't in india it was still like well these people are close enough these people have Mm. names that kind of sound like mine you know these people are eating food that are kind of like mine mm. um and then there was this opening for like like short stories by like Jumba Lahiri and like mm. a lot of um and like even things that weren't from the South Asian diaspora but were from like the Asian diaspora even like the mm. Joy Luck Club by Amy mm. Tan like that was groundbreaking because I grew up in Singapore you know it was it was, it was right. majority Chinese so even that like just seeing like Chinese culture yeah. represented in the western world and seeing that tension between mothers and daughters and you know that intergenerational stuff i was like wow this is this speaks so much to me to my experience mm-hmm. that was really powerful and that i think sort of opened just the, the door just slightly for me i thought oh, okay we can do this and it was, mm-hmm. it was it was very lucky that, that that was that that opportunity came at that time yeah yeah i think that exposure and representation right it's really life-changing it's empowering um, yeah yeah absolutely i i didn't uh, encounter the god of small things until high school and we had to read it too and i remember i just it did not click with me it felt oh, really? like a drag but now i love it as an adult yeah, i just don't beautiful. know if you know me at 16 i was in the right sort of like t- mind frame to really appreciate something like that but I think, yeah, you're right. That was one of my very first exposures to like a South Asian voice. Um, yeah. It's such a powerful one. And a woman's voice as well. Like absolutely. I think most of those books were by women. And that was mm-hmm. interesting as well, that they were, that, you know, it was women who had migrated. It was women who had taken on migration as kind of as a professional route, you know, mm-hmm. out, out of India. And then, you know, or had grown up in, in the U.S. and they were writing stories and they were. So it was like it was two parts of my identity that were being mm-hmm. addressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. And so you feel so like validated. Right. And there's something mm-hmm. really gratifying about reading something that you see yourself in. Yeah. 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 It's interesting because there are people I, I think people who've never had to grapple with this. With, with not being represented don't quite understand it sometimes like some, I mean some of them do but like they're, they're, I remember like when I taught at a high school in Australia we had this like kind of like old 
Uber mm. <laughs> colleague, this teacher, um, an, an older white man who, like we were, there was an anthology about um, growing up Asian. It's called Growing Up Asian in Australia. Mm. And most of the kids that I taught were from Asian immigrant backgrounds. Like there, mm. it was just a, there was a very high density of um, Asian Australians. And he was vehemently against putting that on the reading list. because He said, mm. they already know what it's like to grow up Asian in Australia. And I was, I was <laughs> oh really, I, that made me champion the book even more because I was like, yeah. all the more reason to read it. They see their experience reflected, mm -hmm. right, in these stories. And he was like, no, 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 they need to, you know, like go outside of their experience. It's just like that. Some people don't get mm. the, the, the fiction for some people or, or narratives are a mirror for some people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, absolutely. And, and an important one. Yeah. Yeah. Because unless you have some sort of representation of your own experience, it's really hard to envision yourself in that space, yeah, right? To understand your experience, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's why <laughs> with erotic stories, it was so gratifying for me. I walked into a bookstore and it actually first came up for me on Instagram in like Reese Witherspoon's book club. And then I walked into a bookstore and to just see a book by a brown female author not just like anywhere like tucked away in a corner but on like the bestseller table right there <laughs> as soon as you walk in the store I sort of stopped and I was like oh my gosh I must have this right it was so gratifying I didn't even write it and I felt all the feels at that time I was just thinking yes and I'm like oh, we've made it <laughs> um, yeah I think that was really lovely because before when I was growing up if there was any brown author that I wanted to to read um I had to I don't know like order on eBay or order like elsewhere or ask my cousin from India to keep the book for me and I was gonna get it when I came to visit her so I think I'm just really like appreciating the fact that um all of these diverse voices all of our diverse voices are so now enmeshed and incorporated into yeah. the mainstream space it's wonderful yeah yeah like I said, so when I was growing up, um, I hardly came across a lot of South Asian authors or stories. And um, I'm sure it wasn't a linear journey, but what would you say led you to pursue um, writing about brown women and brown families, specifically in Punjabi women specifically? I know a lot of your books kind of have that um, underlying narrative. And um, I wonder if there was something in particular that sparked that for you. I suppose it goes back to that old adage of like writing what you know and writing mm. from your experience. And I just felt like you didn't have to, you didn't have to stray very far from, from, mm. from my home or from my family mm. to find the good stories or the good drama. Um, but then also I'm really fascinated by like, I suppose like worlds that exist within the larger world or like communities that exist within mm. a larger country and like Sikhs are, you know, minorities everywhere. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, in Singapore, we're like a minority within the minority. So like mm -hmm. Singapore is like, you know, a very small percentage of Singaporeans are Indian. And then within that Indian minority, there are even fewer seats. Mm -hmm. So it's a way of kind of being like we're here mm -hmm. <laughs> and and we have, you know, our own customs, language, traditions that are different from the narrative that everyone has here of of minorities and of Indian people. We're just we're just so small. We're almost invisible. So that to mm -hmm. me was enough to kind of, you know, I wanted to kind of stick my neck out, I suppose. Um, and then, yeah, and then I was really interested with the the double-edged sword, I guess, of being a woman in our community, where there was this kind of matriarchal respect, or this mm -hmm. respect for the matriarchs, and there was, there's a lot of power that Punjabi women have, but then mm -hmm. there's also um, a, a great deal of marginalization you know, mm. being a, 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 a Punjabi Sikh woman. I wanted to explore that. I just thought that that tension between tradition and modernity is, is mm. really fascinating. And it's a real spectrum that I think mm. a lot of women, especially in our generation, like a lot of women kind of swing between. And it's not as easy as pitting one against the other. So I, I was just really curious about that. And I, and I saw just lots of evidence of that. I saw lots of stories, potential for stories within that. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Um, it's almost like, you know, like your whole life, you're doing this market research, <laughs> yeah, right? Just exactly. being in that space and, yeah. um, you're able to then consolidate a lot of that in your books. 
And it's a gift that keeps on giving. Like Punjabi families don't, they never disappoint. There's always more. There's like, always I, was, more. I was panicking the other day because I was like, oh my God, I think I've written all the things I could write about. And then I was like, no, wait, there's extended yeah. family. <laughs> it's yeah. like, wait, yeah. there's those guys. <laughs> yeah. There's this exactly. thing. Like there's always something. There's always <laughs> something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that was also part of uh, the, the reason why... Um, I started focusing on just working mainly with women of color and, and South Asian women, right? In my practice, I'm a therapist. And because when I remember I was looking for a therapist uh, almost a decade ago, I couldn't find anyone who, or like anyone in my area who looked like me or who understood like the cultural nuances, right? And so now catering to that population, I think, you know, like, like, like when you said, when you think you've heard it all, just something new comes up, you know, a client will just yeah. bring something brand new in and that'll make you just sort of go, oh, well, I had no <laughs> idea that this is what this yeah. looks like. Um, but there's always, I think that like our, our, our communities are so complex and our family dynamics, our cultural dynamics are so complex. And there's so yeah. much variability, right? Within all of these cultural groups that yeah. you just, you can't make sweeping generalizations about our group. No. Yeah, we're not monolithic. I think that's something that even a, a, a therapist outside the culture who has been trained needs to understand that there's just such mm -hmm. nuance and variety and complexity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. My own experience too growing up um, is very different from my partner's experience as a Sikh man right growing up and just being from different like states from different communities. Um, it makes such a difference. And I think what I really kind of love in your books is that there's such an intersection of um, community, intersection of um, a character's own sort of like mental health, their mental wellness, intersection of class. And so all of these parts of their identities really like you have a lovely way of kind of writing about the intersection of all of these different identities. And I think that's what makes like your character so dynamic and so relatable. <laughs> thank you yeah I, th I think it comes from that that um sense of not wanting to pin people down too quickly not wanting yeah. to be like this character represents this because mm. i just think that there's just so much complexity to us and even more when you're straddling different identities mm. you know even more so when you're when like i mean all all people are complex all people have the capacity for growth and for change and multitudes and all of that but when you add like this thing of like coming from different contexts and having a code switch mm. in terms of language but also mindset and dressing and all of that like I think that's that's just really fascinating yeah mm -hmm. just, it's, it's, it's very interesting for storytelling yeah yeah I mean so many children of immigrants right we lead double lives and yeah. um I loved how you kind of portrayed that in your character in erotic stories, Nikki. And I absolutely love Nikki right off the bat and, you know, sort of sneaking <laughs> a cigarette like here and there. I think, I think she's just so relatable. And I think that's why it's so gratifying to see um, people like us in literature, in fiction, because it just really validates your experience. It humanizes your experience and it just makes you feel like part of something larger. Yeah. Yeah, it makes us feel visible. Yeah, yeah, it's not isolating at all. Yeah. Um, and then to kind of top that, I love how you talked about women's sexuality. That's not something that we talk about, you know, like openly yeah. in brown communities. Did a whole other episode with a gynecologist where we <laughs> talk about this. But on top of that, we never talk about older brown women and their sexuality and sexual needs and experiences. And this was such a niche. Um, what what inspired you to write about this? Well, it's not just older brown women. Like we don't talk about older women. Like we don't talk about the sex lives or the dating no. lives or the aspirations of older people. Mm. Like we just kind of assume that like they get to an age and then they just kind of stop aspiring. They stop having goals um, mm. and they stop having sexual desires or any sorts of desires. So I think for me, like, I feel like a lot of my writing comes from a place of deep curiosity. And mm -hmm. I had a very deep curiosity since, I think since the first time I learned, like, what sex was. Mm -hmm. like, I had a very deep curiosity about, like, how is it that this is the way that we have all, 
like mm-hmm. procreated. Like this is the way the species has survived. It can't be because I can barely stomach the thought of my parents doing it. But my grandparent, <laughs> yeah. like my my nanny, my daddy, like no, yeah. like yeah. They, they didn't do that. Um, and I remember just being like horrified, but kind of fascinated because then I was like, it kind of gave me a new way of looking at things. I was like, oh, like my nanny, you know, like there's some, some aspect of her is more sophisticated or more savvy than I mm. thought because she had to have like done things with a man, <laughs> you know, that you only saw on HBO. <laughs> like yeah. I had this thing. But then as I got older and maybe maybe a little bit more kind of cynical or realistic, I realized as well that like our grandmothers were so young and so naive, or at least mine was, that she couldn't spell her own name um, mm. and didn't know her own birthday and stuff like that. Mm. How much how much did she know going into her wedding night as a, mm. as a teenager, basically? Mm. How much of it was kind of a surprise to her? Like how much did anyone even talk about it with her? Or was it like, this is happening to you. This mm-hmm. is what will be done to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't really have much say in it. So I, I guess I, I, I felt kind of sad. And I felt kind of, um, I felt like I really wanted to create a world where these women reclaimed that power for themselves later mm-hmm. on in life. You know, and, and then, you know, and, and, and found a way to talk about the other things as well that they had been quiet about. You know, all the other issues that crop up in the book. I do think it starts from there. I think it starts from talking about something quite primal, quite something that's mm. so deeply soaked in shame. Mm. Once you start being open about those things, you start being like, you mm. know what? There are other things, there are other inequalities as well that we could discuss. Mm. And there are other mm-hmm. things that we need to um, we need to start looking at. Yeah. Yeah, I think sometimes we, at least when we're younger, we forget that our parents and grandparents had lives before us. Or young. Yeah. Right? So we're young mm-hmm. once, you yeah. know, they kind of went through like similar like developmental milestones. And, you know, sadly, that's like a population that I've never really kind of wondered about or thought about. And I think that book, your book really got me thinking about the experiences of all the time. Grandma. I remember being at the temple and being like, she did it, she did it, she did it. She did it. <laughs> yeah. That's just yeah. all in my mind. Just, what? Yeah. <laughs> Blew my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it does, right? When you kind of when you come to terms with it, it's like, whoa, it's it's really kind of like groundbreaking. I think someone like a child first learned learns that their parents yeah. had sex to have them. Um it's very destabilizing <laughs> so for a moment. <laughs> that, that's a good word, yeah. <laughughs> yeah. 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 And and I, I I don't know um if you resonate with this, but for me. I've always noticed this larger narrative around older brown women, more of like a negative mm-hmm. like narrative, right? Yeah. This like negative connotation that comes with being like an older like brown auntie. And sadly, that narrative has often dictated how I see some of the older women. And it was very refreshing to, to break out of mm-hmm. that and really like to develop like some compassion some empathy and really kind of humanize them and I think that's what the book did for me really helped humanize older brown women um and really showed them as like dynamic people that are not just these mothers and these grandmothers they're not just these like matriarchal figures like they're complex people as well underneath that yeah who support each other I do think that that's what um yeah Grand aunties do get a bad rap for, yeah. and sometimes, sometimes I mean, sometimes they really play into the stereotype <laughs> yeah. of being, you know, gossipy or yeah. like, um, you know, yeah, judgmental or whatever. Yeah. But then there are also ways that they rally together. Mm-hmm. And in this book in particular, I really wanted the women to save each other and save themselves. Because mm-hmm. I think that happens. I do think that the women, because when they get into these groups where they sit together and they talk about things, I mean, I'm sure you know, like, you know, like, like if you've been in a room full of like older Punjabi women when the door is closed and there are no men around like at a wedding mm-hmm. and they start singing those like really vulgar songs about the wedding night <laughs> or they tell really dirty jokes or they talk about like intimate issues that they're having you know like pelvic floor loosening or breast mm-hmm. you know uh, breast pain or whatever it is like stuff like that 
they start talking, they start supporting each other, they start giving each other tips. Who else is going to do that for them? Mm. You know, the men aren't privy to those conversations. The men aren't going to to um, be listening to those things or, or, or be comfortable with, with you know, those conversations. Mm. So it's up to the women to kind of, and I think women do that, right? They mm. create this bond, they create the solidarity that's so important. And they're, they're really good resources for each other. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to highlight those things as opposed to like, they're always tearing each other down. And they're always working yeah. on behalf of the patriarchy to, to, you know, to out each other. Yeah. 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 And it was such a refreshing take. Um, yeah. 100%. Um, and I know everyone that I've recommended the book to, and as we've talked about it, they've sort of come back with very similar sort of insights. Like, my gosh, like, you know, this makes me look at all like the grandmas and the aunties with like a little <laughs> bit more like compassion and curiosity. Um, because prior to that, I know a lot of people in my life, sadly, we've kind of just overlooked them. Yeah. Right. In a way, and particularly for me, I did not grow up with my grandparents around me so much. So it's just, these were some figures that were not really present in my life on like a day-to-day basis. So I just never had to think about them to the degree um, that someone else would or their experiences. And um, that's why I really loved the focus in this book. yeah yeah um which it also makes me wonder what was the what was the feedback like from the brown community when you wrote this book because i know like in toronto there was definitely there were not uh not like stuff on social media but i think i saw someone once like reading it on a bus and you know the title like draws you in and I think I saw some like boys like across the bus, we like snickering, like, oh, what is what is this like girl reading? Like, what is that? And I'm just curious, like, what was the feedback like from the community? It's really interesting. So I haven't received much direct backlash. I've actually received a lot of really positive yeah. messages from men Lovely. and women. Um, yeah. And like the direct messages and comments that I've received from the community are largely positive. And across gender and age groups, which is is interesting and also really heartening. Maybe two or three times I've received messages from people on social media, like letting me know that they disapprove of the book. Sadly, it's young men. Mm. Um, And there are a few common factors. Like firstly, the accounts that they send things from. This this is like really two or three of them. Mm. Um, I suspect maybe it's just the one person. (laughs) The account is anonymous and they've been set up just for trolling. So that's interesting. and then they always mention, I don't know why you would say this, but they always mention not reading the book. They're like, I saw the title of your book. I'm not going to read it because it's mm. disgraceful. And I'm like, well, I can't take you seriously. Because you haven't read <laughs> I wrote it. a book. I, yeah, and I put my name and my identity to this book. You're not doing that. You're like hiding behind a social media yeah. account. And also, you like you're saying, I didn't read the book. So how how would you know? You know, mm-hmm. and I don't think that reading the book would change those that person's mind. I think they'd be mm. looking for things. But I just, I I find that really interesting. Um, I have heard third hand from friends about people who aren't like pleased with the, with taboo topics being out in the open Mm. or who say that they feel the men in the community aren't represented well. And it kind of Mm. amazes me that a work that doesn't center men, (laughs) that isn't a hundred percent about how great all the men are. Mm-hmm. is then seen as being 100% critical and unfair to men. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There seems to be kind of, there seems to be a lot of fear of our like model minority status being shattered by acknowledging that we still have things to work on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's just not, it's just not true. Like you don't have to look far into my novels to find the good men, they exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm focusing on the women, you know, because mm-hmm. there aren't, there's not that many narratives about women um, and about marginalized women. Mm-hmm. Um, somehow people feel like yeah, because I write about some people who some people who don't respect or value women, I'm I'm somehow re- misrepresenting all of us. But in a way, the people who want to cover up the book um, are kind of doing exactly what their fictional counterparts are doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they're doing the, the exactly what I say they do in in, in the fictional world. They're mm-hmm. kind of proving me right. Um, mm-hmm. My take on it, my take on that sort of criticism, is. There are people who are doing these things. I'm simply writing about it. And there's this idea that it's airing dirty laundry, you know, mm-hmm. it, 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 and I think that's a really dangerous idea because the fact is the dirty laundry exists. 
um, things like domestic violence or women and girls not being treated equally, forced marriages, caste prejudice. And yet I don't, I have yet to see the same level of outrage directed towards the perpetrators of those things. Mm -hmm. Like the amount of energy spent on trying to deplatform or silence a writer could be much better used addressing these issues. But maybe that's like more difficult and more complex than criticizing. Like maybe it's just easier to criticize than yeah. to be like, you know what? Maybe we should look in we should look inward. Yeah. Like maybe we should stop doing or supporting mm -hmm. the perpetrators or covering things up. Instead mm -hmm. it's easier to be like, hey you, <laughs> stop writing about it. Stop talking. Yeah, stop talking about it. You're disgracing the community. Yeah. Yeah. I think that really ties into this larger narrative, right? In brand communities that I see in my work that, you know, what happens at home stays in the home. We don't talk about yeah. what's going on in the home with someone else or people outside. And I think we can apply that to a larger community, right? Like we don't showcase, like you said, our dirty laundry for the world to see and read. Yeah. And I think that's really dangerous because it just silences people. Yeah. It allows people, it allows perpetrators to get away with whatever they want because of this idea of like, you'll bring shame upon the family. How many people have not reported domestic violence? How many mm -hmm. kids have not reported abusive parents or step-parents because they're mm -hmm. like, oh, I'm afraid of bringing shame upon my family. Mm -hmm. it's, it's incredibly mm -hmm. dangerous. Yeah, and it's usually women, right? Like this yeah. honor is bestowed upon us to, yeah. <laughs> to carry yeah. the family's name yeah. and reputation for the rest of our lives. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and I think that's why it was so refreshing to see all the older women, the aunties, like later on in life, find that like sense of empowerment and community and this like sense of liberation. Um, yeah, I do find that like, in my experience of like meeting older Punjabi women, they do, I feel like they've just been through so much by the time they're in their 70s and 80s that they actually do have very like quite progressive views about things. Yeah. Like some of them will be like, yeah, you know, if a couple, if things aren't working out, just get divorced. Some of them will say that because they're like, life is too short. And I've, mm -hmm. you know, I've loosened up on my views because I've seen a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. And 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 all that preserving of honor, like, what did that do for anyone? Mm -hmm. You know, like, I, like you don't want to be, you don't want to be 70 or 80 and being unhappy. I've seen so much of that. So yeah, do, do as you, uh, as you wish. I've seen mm -hmm. a lot of grandparents talk like that. And it's really, it's really interesting. It's really impressive that they come yeah. so far. Yeah, I think it makes some people even more sort of like rigid and bitter. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, the like sense of resentment that I went through it and, you know, I had to do it. So why don't you have to do it? But I think you're right. It also has the opposite impact on a lot of other yeah. people, right? That they can just say, well, you know, I did everything. I followed all the rules and didn't yeah. really get me much. So, you know, do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah, so I think there's that change in movement, right? In the community as well yeah. yeah i was yeah i was really curious about the backlash in the community because i know um that obviously like these like erotic classes not classes but like the writing classes about erotic stories right they happen in the gurdwara and i was really curious if you got <laughs> any comments about that setting not no not specifically again like people have said you know they stopped at the title when i don't want to read it but also like the i I don't know if this makes too much of a difference, but it's a community center outside the Gurdwara. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's kind of like on the grounds of the yeah. I can see how, yeah, there will be people who will be like, oh, this is not appropriate to like, you know, put this center this in the Gurdwara. But it's kind of like in a a center, I suppose, that the Gurdwara yeah. is kind of part of. I mean, if we're being if we're going into like the, the semantics of things. Yeah. Um no, I it it, it hasn't yeah, it, it, that that hasn't come up. Yeah. And maybe it might, yeah. <laughs> I think yeah, because, like you said, right? People kind of criticizing the book. I just like they stop at the title. Yeah, yeah. yeah like I won't get into the finer details because I've decided that I, I'm not. I, I don't want to read it. I've decided I know what it's about. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it sounds like the majority of the feedback has been quite positive. Very positive, and really yeah. not from the people that you'd expect. Like I expected women, you know, to reach out, and they did. But like older Sikh men have written to me, um, mm. like uncles have written to me mm. uh, from Punjab. Uh, I've had a lot of actually very good feedback from from India, like from oh. people in Punjab. Yeah, uh, a number of. Um, I did get one Facebook message once from someone 
and it was really special. It was a, it was a guy who said, I have sisters and I have a mother and I always thought that I knew like by default how to treat them. But after reading your book, I'm seeing everything differently. Mm, and I went, wow. oh my God, that's like, <laughs> that's like the best thing I could hope for. It yeah. was, you know, messages like that go a long way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I think we see older women in general, and especially brown older women, mostly very like as asexual, right? Yeah. And I mean, if you think about it, there in in many families within the Punjabi culture, there isn't so much of like public a physical affection that we see between our parents, right, or our grandparents yeah. or anything. So you can very easily grow up with this notion that oh, they're just asexual, like they don't have any needs um, besides just providing for me. Yeah, 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 yeah. They, yeah, they're kind of seen as like being subsidiaries or like being, being there to serve others, and that was what I really wanted to remove from these characters. I wanted mm. them to just exist as individuals. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And even all of your other works, I know you really focus on some really socially challenging subjects like mental health, sexuality, mother-in-law, daughter-in-law dynamics, um, and I think it really helps to see these dynamics like play out in fiction because i think we've received yeah. a very specific very rigid view through media through movies through tv shows about a lot of these yeah. dynamics and there isn't so much of a different narrative yeah it's just like the, the bad mother-in-law or like the mm-hmm. spoiled daughter-in-law like there isn't like complexity to these yeah. dynamics that we see and so that's why I like really appreciated reading a lot of your work because it helped introduce a new way of looking yeah. at some of these like roles. Yeah. Yeah, that was a big priority for me. I think mm-hmm. especially like I think when you're when you're writing when you're one of the only people writing about a particular community um, and writing it for the rest of the world to see. Yeah. You really want to make sure that you do justice to your representations of things and people um and that you you know that 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 that, yeah that you create dimension i suppose and that you don't just kind of go along with um narratives that are already that already exist you feel like you you have an opportunity to to complicate things a little bit yeah Mm -hmm. yeah that we're a dynamic group we're just not as like you know, simplistic as sometimes yeah, like yeah. media makes out to be. Yeah, because when I remember even when I was growing up, like the only brown character that I saw on TV was like Apu from Simpsons or I know. I you know, know like that's the worst or like mind you I don't know if you guys have mind your language, that awful show. Like No, I don't think so. It was very like it was like a, a British show about this British man who's like teaching English to all these mm. foreigners and there's a Sikh character as a Pakistani character and they can't get along mm. and like but like you know my parents like gathered like we all gathered to watch that every week because mm. there was no brown representation on tv so if that was what you're gonna get then you know okay mm. like yes it was stereotypical yes like, today we'd be like what is this you mm. know but back then it was like well that's something mm-hmm. yeah there was something and I'm gonna take it I'm gonna take whatever representation yeah yeah right you know, that I'm the Simpsons, I was like he's such a yeah. caricature but he's something yeah you know, so I'm, I'm glad that we don't have to do that so much anymore no yeah now we have some uh, well-represented shows and characters and movies yeah yeah 100 percent, 100 because i think you really internalize right a lot of this um and yeah. how you show up in the world it's really easy to internalize and start stereotyping people yeah and i know as a brown community and it's uh, brown communities that live outside of like uh, South Asia, we carry a lot of internalized racism as well. There's a lot of internalized shame. There's, yeah. you know, a lot of a see value in proximity to whiteness. So yeah. it's really important to to kind of like own our identities. And, you know, so obviously I absolutely love everything that you write about. But one of the things that I was really curious about was um, what you would want to say to someone who is an aspiring writer because creative work traditionally typically in our communities like you said is not something that's really 
encouraged, right? It's sort of like, okay, well, you know, if you want to be an artist, do it on the side, but, you know, learn to go to med school, right? That's like your main thing and your main job. And so our creative passions and pursuits really, really get squashed really early on. And I know you've kind of, like you mentioned, you've had like your own journey through this and I guess so many of the people that I work with now, or just in my personal life, I see so many of us um, who have all of these like creative um, aspirations, but we often get really like stuck between what we want for ourselves and what we're told we need and we should want. Um, So I'm just wondering what advice would you want to give to like a listener who's stuck in this space? I think maybe, I think we need to go back to the idea of selfishness that holds a lot of us back the idea Mm. of like other people calling us selfish and really reframe that or rephrase that Mm. like i think that's a very easy weapon to use against a child who's like not obeying right like what the you know and and not going along with what the parents Mm. want um or a wife who's not you know doing going at the the way her husband wants to, to do things i think you just we need to consider um that that word is so weaponized Mm. and think about the fact that it's not selfish it's absolutely not selfish to act in your interests before others to Mm -hmm. put your interests ahead of others it doesn't mean that you are completely it's not absolute you're not you know completely dismissing what other people say Mm -hmm. like i'm quite grateful in a sense for the pragmatism that i was raised with because Mm. i didn't graduate from college and become a starving artist I knew like I was like I have to have a plan B <laughs> and I have to develop like a career that has a salary and that like mm-hmm. I have to do more so I can support myself mm-hmm. and and then I can kind of prove myself in this creative arena because like mm-hmm. that side is taken care of I'm not a burden on anyone mm-hmm. so like no one can hold that against me and say oh you know you're just dragging everyone down with this mm-hmm. creative pursuit of yours mm-hmm. you, so you can do that um, and you can still follow your creative pursuits mm-hmm. um, but if 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 the thing that if the thing that you're being asked to do is being prescribed for you, like if it's a kind of a vague thing of like you know what you can be an artist but you need to support yourself, I think that's fair. I think that's very mm-hmm. fair. I don't think that's just brown parents. I think most mm-hmm. parents would say that to their kid, right? Like I don't want yeah. you living in my basement until you're forty. <laughs> I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, but if the thing that's prescribed for you is like you will be an engineer or you will be a doctor. Mm-hmm. then you need to really step back and be like, okay, do mm-hmm. I want to commit this much of my life and this much of my identity towards making somebody else happy? And to what, for what reason? Mm-hmm. For prestige? Mm-hmm. Like, do they want me to be a doctor because they want me to be helping people or do they want to be telling the community that their son or daughter is a doctor? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so really thinking about that. And again, just going back to the idea of like, is it really selfish of me to live my life for myself? Mm-hmm. Um and not completely, not absolutely for myself, but at least mm-hmm. put it at the top of the list, especially mm-hmm. for women. You know, women are always told to put other people's needs first. And they're always put to they're always told to put their roles first, their daughter, wife, mother. So, mm-hmm. you know, just thinking, just just reframing that I think would be is is so powerful. Yeah, this idea of duality, right? That you can want something that's more stable and traditional while at the same time nourishing this creative part of you. Like you don't have to rigidly pick one or the other and stick to it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, like you said, especially for brown women too, right? Like we're subservience, silence, silence, suffering, all of these things are really appreciated, very socially rewarded, right? Sacrifice yeah yeah sacrifice is so it's so it's so um it's funny because it's not even rewarded that much it's just so expected and it's so it's it's praised in a really shallow way it's like oh Mm -hmm. look she made so many sacrifices but then it just leads to more sacrifices Mm -hmm. it's like when you have a job and you do really well at the job and the other people on the team slack off because they're like she does the job pretty well and you just get more responsibilities and more work because you're the one who's staying there late it's yeah. it's like that it's that 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 daughter wife you know mother role is similar if, if you're trapped in that kind of cycle of just being the sacrificer yeah yeah and people pleaser right because that's essentially yes. like waving everybody else's flag but your own yeah um 
And that often becomes a way of surviving, I think, in a lot of our communities. And then you get to your late 20s, early 30s, mid 30s, and you go, oh, I did everything that I was supposed to do and I still feel unhappy. Yeah. And there's still more to do. Like yeah. those those expectations don't let up. They, no. they just keep coming. There's not a, there's it, the goalposts keep moving. Yeah, 100%. Um, I remember that was a real realization, I think, in my late 20s. I was like, oh, mm. it's never going to be enough. Mm. So I better start doing things for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got the right grades. I didn't date mm-hmm. boys. I went yeah. to the right university. I got the right master's. I got the right job. I got the promotion. Yeah. It's just Still not it's good never enough. ending. No, yeah. it's not good enough. Right. You got to keep doing more. And I think it's okay to want the best for your children. But I think when within our communities, we get so wrapped up and obsessed with the idea of doing more and more and more. Yeah. That's really exhausting. And I really question as well the what's best for the children. I I question that to to, to some degree because there's Mm -hmm. so much of like what's best for my children is what's best for my reputation. Mm -hmm. And that's something Mm -hmm. I really push hard against. Because I, like I said, I've mentioned before, I worked at a high school that had. A lot of, yeah. you know, um, Asian kids and, and, and a, a lot of Indian kids. And there was this, like, real kind of gap between, like, kids' abilities sometimes and, like, what the parents wanted for them. Mm-hmm. Like, no, he will go to medical school. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. his abilities aren't there. He's 17. He's not going to mm-hmm. catch up to that mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. But it was like, no, that's the only path. Like, we migrated here. That's the only path told everyone that he's going to be a doctor there was no kind of um flexibility and understanding just how many like your kid is great your kid is wonderful your kid your kid is good at so many things and your kid will thrive and survive because you are good parents you know and you've and you've given them the tools and we have helped give them the tools but instead it was like no there's this one definition of success yeah and he has to meet that or it's over Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. doctor lawyer engineer or failure yeah yeah <laughs> right? exactly. it's a big one yeah yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. yeah but yeah i like this i think doing that inner work to kind of find your happy medium right yeah. um and it takes a lot of work it takes a lot of self-reflection and it's constantly like shifting um yeah. over time but i think that's a great place to start yeah yeah, yeah. wow well i've had a lot of fun chatting with you me too today Bella. Great. Yeah. this gave me a lot to think about you did it okay i'm so glad yeah <laughs> no i think this was really lovely thank you so much for making the time and for anyone listening you want to check out um some of Bowie's works i will have everything linked down below including um, her website and her instagram um check her out and um stay tuned for our disclaimer The guest and the host at Brown People Problems do not offer individualized therapeutic or medical advice, and our conversations should not be interpreted as such. This podcast is not a replacement for therapy. This podcast exists for educational purposes only. Please consider your circumstances and engage with the content mindfully.